All right, Exodus chapter 6, verse 14. These are the heads of their fathers' houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These were the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jashin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. And these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimei, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mahli and Mushi. These were the families of Levi according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uzel were Mishael, Elephan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elishaba, daughter of Amminadad, sister of Nashon, as wife. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Elazar, and Ithmar. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanan, and Abishaph. These are the families of the Korathites. Eleazar, Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel as wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites according to their families. These were the same Aaron and Moses to which the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. And Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my sons and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring the children of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did so. Just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 83 years old, and Aaron was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Thus far, the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Father, as we were reminded in the homily from Corinthians that it is by your spirit that the word goes forth with power. Father, we desire that your word would go forth with power in this place, that you would bless the preaching and our hearing of the word. Instruct us, Lord, and build us up in our holy religion for your glory. 
Lord, that we would be equipped to keep the commandment that you've given to your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I remember, I want you to remember where we're at. We're in the middle, if I put it this way, we're in the middle of a contention between the Lord and Moses. Between the Lord and his people. And in a sense, between the Lord and Pharaoh. God, the Lord, has heard the cries of his people and that they are suffering in slavery in Egypt. And he's called Moses from keeping his sheep in the wilderness of Midian. He's called and appeared to him. And he has sent him to bring his people out. Remember how everyone was excited and eager when Moses first came with that message. Except for Pharaoh. Pharaoh, he has turned up the screws or tightened the screws of oppression even tighter. And the people have complained and they're no longer eager to follow Moses. They're not so keen on this idea. And yet the Lord has told Moses to go back to the king of Egypt and deliver his message. Let my people go. Moses objected again. My lips are uncircumcised. Israel hasn't listened to me. Why in the world is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Nevertheless, God commanded Moses and Aaron to go. Serving the Lord in a world filled with rebellious people. A people who have no faith in God can be hard. It's where we live, isn't it? We're surrounded by people that they don't care about the word of the Lord. They don't want to listen to the word of the Lord. They rebel against it. We see even an escalation in our day. They refuse to listen to God anyone or anyone that he sends with the good news of his salvation, whether it be through the preaching of the word of God or you and I bearing witness to those we know. And come with a message of salvation paid for by another and freely offered to those we meet. We usually think of ourselves just like Moses, don't we? We think of ourselves as inadequate. Lord, my, my lips are heavy. I don't know how to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I'm, I'm fearful. And how often have we said, Lord, send someone else. And yet God has sent us, his people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the church right before he ascended back into heaven to the right hand of the Father? It's very similar. As with Moses, Jesus gave the church a great commission. And it's, it's not negotiable. It's not a suggestion. It's also a great commandment. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our charge, our commission from the Lord is not unlike that given to Moses. Moses to bring a literal people out from literal slavery, out from an actual house of bondage. We've been charged to go to bring them the message of the good news of the gospel to liberate men from the kingdom of darkness and from the bondage and sin. Which is more important? Well, they're both important in God's plan. And we're here in Exodus because what we find in Exodus is, is a, a very vivid picture of the realities of what Christ does, bringing sinners out from the bondage of sin. Like Moses, we have been sent to bring this message to a people bound in slavery, bound in a house of bondage, bound in citizens of a kingdom of darkness. 
Like Moses, we see ourselves as insufficient for the task. And honestly, in and of ourselves, we are. And yet, like Moses, God has equipped us to go. Just like Moses, God has promised to go with us. Could it be that there are lessons in this text for the church today? Surely, there are. We're going to use four main points. We're going to look first, and and at some length, at a geology, I'm sorry, a genealogy for a purpose. A genealogy for a purpose. The title will be a little more clear in a moment. And then we're going to look at God's commission to Moses, redeclared. God sending Moses back to Pharaoh. And then Moses and Aaron, we can say, finally, obey and go. Moses and Aaron, obey and go. The major message then is just as God has sent and equipped Moses in the days of old, we too are equipped and sent into the world. Our call is to make disciples and teach them the truths of Christ, fully dependent upon God to use his word to deliver sinners and bring them to himself, to bring them home to heaven. So we begin with a genealogy for a purpose. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.4, early on in his first pastoral letter to Timothy, who is serving the church in Ephesus. He says to Timothy that he should charge some in the church of Ephesus to not give heed to fables and endless genealogies. It must be important because Paul writes the same thing to Pastor Titus in another pastoral epistle that he should avoid foolish disputes and genealogies. Matthew Henry comments that men in those days like to spend their time, quote, in idle and foolish inquiries, tending neither to God's glory nor to the edification of men. Is that what genealogies are? Or could it be that God's glory is in genealogies, rightly understood, and they're edifying to men? Some of you might be thinking, well, Pastor, why in the world are you making a point in your sermon to look at a genealogy? If Paul wrote that to Titus and Timothy, why are we pausing here to look at this? Well, my response is simple. Not all genealogies are endless, nor are we going to engage in foolish disputes about genealogies. The passage before us begins with a genealogy. In a sense, the, the, the narrative, the, the telling of the story is interrupted. We find it placed here, and I hope to show you in a little bit that it's intentional. It's placed here, this genealogy. It's here for a purpose. This we want to see what is that purpose. In verse 14 says, these are the heads. This is how the Old Testament speaks of the tribes and um, uh, of the patriarchs. We saw this in Genesis. We kept seeing these are the generations of, and we looked at the life of, um, let's say, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and, and then more particularly Joseph. These are the heads. And it begins with Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. These are Jacob's three firstborn sons. Now, you will remember from Genesis particularly that the, the genealogies, the, the recording of Jacob's sons, aren't always in that order. Sometimes they're ordered according to their mothers and, and the wife of Jacob's preference. But this time, it's here. Why, why insert a genealogy into the record of history? Well, I think the ancient reader would have understood why. They, by this point, naturally when asking about Moses and Aaron, who are these guys? Who appointed them? Where, where do they come from? What special place do they have that, that they should be followed? Why are they the ones that God would use to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, remember, the primary focus of the Old Testament is the seed of the woman, 
and the seed of the serpent, the great conflict. We saw that throughout the book of Genesis and the emphasis on recording the line of Seth and then the line of Cain. Another reason for recording the genealogies is to maintain a record of the 12 sons of Jacob. It's very significant for Israel that this record be established, that there be this clear uh, recording of who are the children of Jacob. Here we find this focus on the tribe of Levi coming all the way down to Aaron and Moses, the, the, the players in the story, the, the chief uh, instruments of God's choosing to accomplish His purpose. This record is established also that this is the tribes of Levi. You heard of Levi's sons, each of his three sons. And we're going to see that these three sons played a significant role, particularly in the worship of God. Now it stops after Levi. It's not that there aren't other tribes, but really uh, this is driving to Moses and to Aaron. So we see Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. This is the same order that we saw back in Genesis 46. The names of the clans and the tribes are established then as the sons are named. We learn in this text, did you catch it? Simeon had a son from a Canaanite woman. Shaul was a son of a pagan woman, something that was discouraged all the way back in Genesis 26. You would remember that was about Esau, Jacob's brother. What did Esau do? He went and took wives for himself amongst the pagan people of the land. And the scripture says that it brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. And so here we see in this uh, genealogy that Simeon had taken a Canaanite wife. So what a reminder that children of Israel, where are they going? They're going out of Egypt. They're going up to the land filled with pagans. And God would have them to preserve themselves as a people. Even as Paul will write in the second letter to the church of Corinth that God's people should not be unequally yoked. We should not be unequally yoked. We should not join with the people of the world or to be married within the household of faith. The main focus is then is on the tribe of Levi in these verses, particularly from 16 on through 25. Here we find Levi's sons named in birth order, Gershom, Kohath, and Merai. Moses will later appoint duties in the tabernacle to these three clans of the tribe of Levi. It will be critical from that time on that a man who was of Levi be able to demonstrate his ancestry back to these three so that he uh, could be rightly entrusted with the duties in the tabernacle and, and later in the temple in the service of the worship of God. They need you to be able to prove it. And you will see that when the children of Israel come out from the Babylonian captivity, that there were some who thought they were the tribe of Levi, but they didn't have the record and they were prohibited from serving God in the matters of worship. In Numbers, then, Moses records that the sons of Gershom were given the charge over the curtains, screens, and hangings of the court. The sons of Kohath were given charge over the furniture, including the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the table for the showbread, the altar for the incense, and the lampstand, along with, along with all the other utensils. And the sons of Merari were responsible for the frames, bars, and pillars and sockets that supported the tabernacle, that supported the curtains. And these three clans and the sons that descended from them were given charge over them. And we'll see that later on in Exodus, that as the tabernacle is built, 
that these things will have to be transported, and it is the sons of Levi who will have that duty. So this genealogy establishes the rightful sons of Levi. Remember, they've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. How well have the records been kept? It seems that they've been kept well, but we see God through Moses establishing a clarity as he writes these things in the book of Exodus. When we look at the end of the line of Levi in verse 25, the last sentence, what do you see there? These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levitic Levites according to their families. That's a familiar word to us. If we're familiar with the Old Testament, we've heard the word Levites, right? This is the first time it's used. So you see something happening. These three sons are set, set out their names specifically, and then they're referred to as Levites. This is going to become an office in the, the church of old, in the worship of God. And here it is, inserted, before the exodus has even occurred. God is going somewhere. He said He's going to bring them out. And He's underscoring the certainty of it, even in these maybe small matters. Another reason for this record is to establish a time record, a, a chronology of things. No ages are recorded for the tribes of Reuben or Simeon. Uh, the, the progression of time is marked out through the tribe of Levi. Levi's age is recorded, uh, as are his descendants. There are some people who question the accuracy of this passage. There are those who have suggested, due to uh, Exodus 12.40, talks about that the length of time of the slavery uh, that, no, the length of time that Egypt was, Israel was in Egypt was 430 years, 400 year years in slavery. And so, well, this can't be right. We had just got these three here and, and we're at Moses and there. That doesn't even seem possible. But if you consider it, Levi, 137 years. Kohath, 133 years. Kohath's son, Amram, 137 years. And Aaron, Aaron, 83 at the time of the Exodus. That adds up to 490 years. What's the problem? There's plenty of time to have passed. These men lived extraordinarily long lives. The fact that Levi was well into his adult years at the time that Jacob and his children came down into Egypt doesn't affect this at all. 430 does not seem to be wrong. After all, God's word is infallible. It's without error. It's accurate. So verse 20 picks up with Kohath, son of Amran. And we're told that Amran married his father's sister, Jochebed. That would be his aunt. That's not been prohibited. Later on in Leviticus, such marriage unions will be prohibited by God, but it has not been at this point. And so we note that Jochebed is the one who bore two sons to Amran, Aaron, and Moses, which is where the particular driving force of this genealogy is, coming to these two men, underscoring the legitimacy of them being used of the Lord to serve in this capacity. Now, notice that Aaron married, married Elishaba the daughter of Aminadad, the sister of Nashon. Now you might say, those are just names, Pastor. Well, this is I'm here to explain to you. This is a tribe of Judah. Nashon was in the tribe of Judah. If you look at the line of Christ there, you will find out that this is Aminadab and Nashon are right in the line of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew's account of the genealogy of Christ. Just another an aside, just, it's interesting. Elisheba is an Old Testament uh, name for a woman that means Elizabeth. Jesus' relative marries 
uh, cousin, it seems. And what was Aaron and Moses' sister? Miriam, which is the Old Testament name for Mary. There's some interesting occurrences. Anyway, to Aaron, Elisha bore to, um, to Aaron, she bore four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Probably the first two of those are more, shall we say, notorious. Some of you will understand fine if you go read Leviticus 10. So these four will play a significant role then when the tabernacle is built and the worship of God has begun. These four will be priests to the Lord, priests to the God Most High. Aaron, we find then, married outside of the tribe of Levi. His wife from, was from the tribe of Judah. This is significant as well. Elisha's father and brother, as I said, are in the line of the seed of the woman. This reminds us that that's what's going on here. Here again, we have a, a genealogy. Uh, we haven't seen one in a while. We find them all throughout the book of Genesis. And here it again, that we should be reminded what's going on. God has promised a seed of the woman. The story is moving forward and reminded again that that seed of the woman is, will indeed come. But this intersection between these two tribes, we see an intersection between the priestly tribe of Levi and the kingly tribe of Judah. There's a common uh, connection here. And indeed that reminds us that who is Christ? He is the prophet, the priest, and the king, one who fulfills all. Moses also is prophet, priest, and king to Israel in his days. So then verse 26 and 27, we see the main purpose for this genealogy. The point is that Aaron and Moses are the very ones appointed by God to what? To bring out his children from the house of bondage. Notice that the two verses begin and end in the same manner. Look at verse 26. These are the same Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said. And then at the end of verse 27, these are the same Moses and Aaron. There's a flip in the name order. Aaron, Moses, son's birth order. Moses, Aaron, God's priority and his purpose to accomplish. Even as the next passage, we'll see that Moses will be as God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be his prophet. And thus the flipping of the order of the names. So what is going on here um, is what theologians call, children, here's a big word. It's not a big word, but an inclusio. You you hear something in there like include. An inclusio uh, is set apart to include something. And you have heard me from this pulpit talk about a chiasm. That's the Greek word, a chi. It's not an X. Um, a chi, when if you have a line, it, it drops down. It's a big letter. It's, it's a point of intersection. And because of the inclusio, we find here a chiasm, a, a structure for emphasis. It's not by accident. And what this, the point is that these two men that God has appointed, it's not by accident. This is something God has done. This is something God is doing. These are the, of the, Lord, the men of the Lord's own choosing. There's that emphasis through the inclusio, through the chiasm. And so what we see here is a genealogy on purpose. It's not just another genealogy. There's a lot in here. We've taken some time with it. And we certainly don't find it to be something foolish to consider it. My friends, God is still the Lord over all. And we also are God's people of his own choosing. 
He has chose us. And he has called us at this time and in this place as we are to be his specific people. As he has done down through the generations. God is very intentional. He's very purposeful. He has his plan and we are part of that. We are called also and sent to be a people to those around us who are in bondage, enslaved in sin, that the Lord would use us as his instruments, that through the gospel message that he would bless his word and bring them out of bondage. So let us look to Christ for the boldness and the words to make disciples of those that are around us that are perishing. You realize so much can be wrapped up in a genealogy? Let's move on to our next point. God's commission to Moses is redeclared. Verses 28 through 30 is not really new material here. It's, it's, it's declared again. Uh, these verses it's really serve to bring we, the reader, back to the narrative that's been taking place. We've been in a narrative. Things are unfolding. This happened. This happened. We're in the midst of that conflict or contest between the will of Moses and the will of God. And the reader is brought back to that after the genealogy. It's like, oh yeah, remember what's going on here? We've we see who these men are and that where you know God has raised them up, but here's what's going on. And you find that in these verses, it's pretty much the same thing that was back in verses 10 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel grow. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Sounds like what we see in verse 28. And it came to pass on that day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised list. How shall Pharaoh heed me? Those two sets, very similar, they're also an inclusio. And what's in between them? The genealogy, which underscores that the importance of the importance of the genealogy, that these two set apart, uh, that they're enclosing that, that it belongs here. This was intentional. This was on purpose. It was deliberate. And then we find in the passage before us that God supplies the answer to the question Moses asked in verse 12. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? That's the question that's kind of lingering. We could say God's really already answered that. At the bush, He's going to send you down and I'm going to go with you. And He's reiterated that. But don't we understand that? Aren't we of the same nature as Moses? We need to be told. We need to be told. We need to be reassured. It's part of the point of the Lord's Day to come back and be reminded, to be told again and again and again. But here we see God answers Moses, How shall Pharaoh heed me? That is often... The question we ask when we think about witnessing to those that we know that are perishing. How are they going to listen to me? I don't know enough. I I don't really know what to say. But you think about in the New Testament, we are told that we are to be witnesses. What does a witness do? Tells about what he saw. Tells about what he experienced. We can all do that. Are are you a new creature in Christ? Have you been born from above? Has God had mercy on you and saved you uh, of your sins? Has God been working in your life day by day that you're growing in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's your story. You can bear witness of it. And indeed, that's what we're called to do, is to bear witness. 
verse 28 through 30 shows us that Moses is still unwilling to go to Pharaoh. And as I've said right through thus far, Moses is young in the Lord. He has an immature faith. He, he's, he's young in the Lord. He's, he's not grown. We're going to see him grow. We're going to watch him grow. And hopefully we're going to learn as we watch him grow to a mature man of God and his faith to be strengthened, to be bold. As a matter of fact, as we end this section, there, there's a marked shift, as you will soon see. Moses doesn't see how he could possibly be successful. How often have we felt that way when we try to bear witness to someone in the bondage of sin? All that went before, all that has gone on thus far, from Moses' perspective, has just made things worse. He went to Pharaoh, gave the message, and things got really, really bad for Israel. And in some sense for him, now the people are after him. Who appointed you? And so Moses wants to know why. And that brings us thirdly to God sends Moses back to Pharaoh. In verse 1, the chapter opens. Notice as we look at verse 1 and following in chapter 7, what's not recorded. What doesn't God say? What what isn't God saying? It doesn't say, and the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. We will find that happen down the road. But it's when Moses is a more mature man. Here's the, Moses, he's, he's young in the Lord. We, we might call him a baby Christian. He's yet immature. And the Lord is patient with him. He's not angry. He doesn't rebuke him. He remembers who he is. And God's already answered Moses back in verse 6 through 8, where we looked at the I wills of the Lord. I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. God's already said that to Moses. He's given him the answer. The the, the success of the mission doesn't depend upon you, Moses. It doesn't really matter that you have uncircumcised lips. I, the Lord, am the source of strength and power. I, the Lord, will bring this about. How encouraging when we remember that as God's people. That the Lord will accomplish His will. So we've seen Moses is concerned about his ability to speak. So what happens in this passage, notice verse 1. See, this is God speaking. See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. A God is God overall. But God is saying, I'm, cre- I'm setting you apart to be as God to Pharaoh. You will be, as it were, in my office under me. I'm not imparting you not becoming God, but you will be as God to Pharaoh. And so you need a prophet. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. And we've already heard God say this. I will tell you what to speak. And you will tell Aaron, and Aaron will speak to Pharaoh. He's articulate. You don't need to worry about that, Moses. You just tell your brother. So, does Moses have an answer? Yes. He says, I'm on uncircumcised lips. I can't speak to Pharaoh. God says, you don't have to. I'll speak to you. You just speak to Aaron. You just tell Aaron what I'm telling you. And so, from Pharaoh's perspective, he'll see Aaron as a prophet. He will be your prophet. And behind Aaron will be you. You you will be as God to Pharaoh. What a remarkable place that uh, Moses was placed in. But God is above it all. And in it all and through it all. This is God's order. Moses didn't take this to himself. Moses is not usurping. 
Moses, the Lord tells Moses, you shall speak to Aaron. What we find in the answer is, we can say the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord is saying, Moses, we're done debating this issue. This is the way it is. You'll be as God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet. And furthermore, he says, you shall speak all that I command you. It was to be God's word that would prevail over Pharaoh. Not Moses' eloquence, not even Aaron's eloquence. The message were to be God's word. You, it's in my word that there's power. It's in my word that's authority. And you were to be the faithful ambassador. You tell Aaron what I said, and Aaron will tell Moses my word. And so ultimately what Pharaoh will hear is God's word. God's commandment, God's promises, God's threatenings, God's curses. That having been said, then God tells Moses what he's already told him, verse 3, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Don't be surprised, Moses. You've already seen this. This is the way it is. But Moses gets an explanation as to why this is the way that it's going to be. God goes on. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. If Pharaoh had just said, okay, go, we wouldn't have these plagues. And by God hardening Pharaoh's heart, consistent with what his heart was, great and mighty signs and wonders will be done. And indeed, even these things will result in Pharaoh's heart becoming harder. What is happening is a judicial, a judgmental hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He refuses to obey God. And he becomes hardened in that rebellion and in his stiff-neckedness. And thus, the hand of God is even more powerfully against him. That's a word of warning for every sinner that would refuse to hear God calling him to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Do not harden your heart against the Lord. What Pharaoh did, he hardened his heart, the Lord hardened his heart. And in the end, God will triumph over Pharaoh and he bring him right down to his very knees. In verse 5, God says, And it will be known for the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord. That is, I am God and there is no other. The Egyptians had a host of idols. I watched a brief series on TV done, I don't know who did it, but it was about Egypt, their whole history from like in the 7th, 8th millennium before Christ up until about the time of Christ. And they had so many gods, and religion was so much about their life as a nation. It was so vital and critical, that, and what even united them to become a powerful nation is because of their common religion. But they had a plethora of gods. They came and went, and one rose up. This is the identity of Egypt, my friends. It's the identity of every nation. Do not for a moment think that our United States of America does not have a, a national religion, a, a God that they serve, you know, materialism and self-centeredness. We see that uh, anything and everything that's against the Lord God Almighty. It's what unites our nation, even as it's dividing our nation. Is it not the hand of God in judgment upon us as a people? And so God says that he will Bring Egypt to know. I will multiply my lands, my, hand, uh, my wonders in the land of Egypt. The Pharaoh will not heed you that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies, that's the word host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. 
And the Egyptians shall know that I am what? The covenant faithful Lord to Israel. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Reading in uh, Joshua now in my daily reading. And uh, we had the spies go into Jericho. And Rahab's there. And what does she tell them? She said, we've heard about what God has done to the Egyptians. We heard how he parted the Red Sea. The word of your God has arrived in this land and the hearts of the people melt. Rahab believed that the Lord God was God. She had faith in him. You see that as the, the, the dialogue goes on with the two spies that she protected. So the word went out. These things that God showed the Egyptians spread out. And surely the Israelites came to know the power that was in the Lord their God, His mighty hand upon Egypt. It will be there for Israel to see because in time they will be going up into a land occupied by giants in some places. And they needed to know that the Lord their God was able to do it. He was able to do just as He promised. Do we not believe that? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered you out from the power of sin? Is that not your hope, your confession that my sins are forgiven, my hope is in heaven, I'm united to Christ, my eternal home is with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever and evermore? What power? That power is sufficient to live day by day for the glory of God too, isn't it? We need to be reminded of that. That when we're battling with sin, we don't put to death the deeds of the flesh. We don't crucify our flesh day by day, as Jesus says there too. In our own strength, it is by the Spirit. Romans eight thirteen. Well, God's said what He said before. He says it again. It's very concise and pointed. What's the response of Moses this time? Well, that's our fourth point. Moses and Aaron obey and go. Look at verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron did so. Amen. Praise the Lord. God has prevailed. Isn't that what he does in the heart of a sinner that he is targeted to bring his grace to? He prevails. And we can bless God for that. That as hard as our hearts are, God is greater. And he has done a good work in Moses and Aaron. Notice the emphasis in the text. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. You see what's on either? Could we say it's another inclusio? Well, yeah, let's not overuse the word inclusio, but you see what's in there? It's an emphasis. They did so. So they did. The emphasis is on the, in the record, they obeyed. And what's remarkable is this is a Hebrew way of saying that Moses and Aaron are now completely obedient to the Lord. And now for a number of chapters, chapters and chapters, we will see Moses move forward doing all that the Lord commanded no more contest no more objection no more argument no more disagreeing the Lord has done a good work it's not that Moses like oh okay no the Lord has begun a good work in Moses and he is completing that work in Moses the Lord has prevailed and Moses is ready to obey no more doubting no more hesitation Moses is now the man of God obeying his covenant faithful Lord Moses is beginning the greatest chapter in his life at this point. Where so many others are in the, in the grave or sitting on the couch with a remote, 
Moses has just begun. 80 years old. That's what we're told. He's 80 years old. And he's begun. He's going to lead this great nation. He's going to do contest and conflict with, with the superpower of the world. Wow. This man will be enabled by God to then serve Him for the next 40 years. And at the time of Moses' death, God tells him to go up on the mountain because he's to be gathered to his father. We're told that Moses was still in the strength. He still had his strength and vigor. May it be so for us. Moses is a man who pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ probably more than just about any other man in the Old Testament. He's a type of Christ. He is one of the few who is in all three offices. We see he's a king. He's going forth to conquer. He's the Lord's leader of the people. He's a king. He's a prophet. He's the one who speaks the word of God to Aaron to, and then to Pharaoh. And then he will speak the word of God to the people. He's a prophet. He's a priest. When the tabernacle is built and Aaron and his sons are consecrated, who is setting them apart? Moses, prophet, priest, and king. And yet, Moses was a flawed man. And he erred. We will see that. And he doubted. He's not the Lord Jesus Christ. But he points to the one that's come to come. Indeed, the one who has come. He points to Christ like a powerful beacon, a, a great arrow beaming with neon lights to look down the course of history to the seed of the woman who would come, indeed who has now come. We can be thankful to God for Moses and his life and the lessons that are here in it. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ alone who came from heaven, who came from glory, who stooped, who humbled himself to take on our humanity, to live under the law and to obey the law that He gave to Moses. And He lived a life of obedience before the Lord all His days. And He went to the shameful, painful death of the cross. Moses was great. But the Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely greater. That He should have all the glory and all the honor. He alone is to be worshipped and revered and adored. This is what the, uh, the, the Jews of Jesus' day miss. Here is the one who has come. The one that Moses prophesied of in Deuteronomy. The one who, who Moses' entire life pointed to is in their midst. And they're hung up with Moses in the keeping of the law. Oh, my friends, let us look to Christ and to look to no other. As we conclude, we see there's powerful lessons here for us. God has called us to be witnesses, to be disciple makers. And He has called us to be holy. That is to live lives of faith and repentance day by day, continuing to believe the Lord Jesus Christ, continuing to repent of our sin. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. We die on a cross. He says, let him take up his cross. It is our responsibility to crucify the flesh, to deny the flesh, and we do so by the Holy Spirit and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as God sent and equipped Moses in the days of old, He has sent and equipped us in our day to go forth and deliver His glory. The church has been commissioned and commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ right before He ascended into heaven that we are to go as witnesses. We're His ambassadors. We're, we're His mouthpieces. Yes, there are some who are uniquely called and gifted and given to the church as preachers. But we're all called to bear witness Christ. That is the responsibility as a church of a whole. We do so according to our office and stations. 
church has been obeying the Great Commission for 2,000 years. And when we look at the history of the church, we learn and we are encouraged. But it is given to us today to do these things. What does that look like? For many of you, as parents, particularly as fathers in the home, gather your family before the Lord in family worship. Open a scripture. Be intentional. Work through a book of the Bible. I highly commend if you've not done this before, begin with the book of Proverbs. There's 31 Proverbs. There's 31 days in most months. If it's the 16th of the month, read the 16th proverb. Maybe you don't know much to say about it. And maybe you see something and you say, you notice this? And as you learn, you will grow in your ability to explain more and more from the text. And then pray. Fathers, pray with your families. And then sing. Sing a song. Sing a hymn. Maybe you know some of their spiritual songs, kids that have learned. They have things that they have memorized better than you. Maybe you can learn them because <laughs> your kids have them memorized. Sing something to the glory of God. And in so doing, you're making disciples of your little ones, the next generation that will serve the Lord God. Mothers and fathers, live out your Christian faith before your children. What does that look like? Tell them how the Lord strengthens you. Tell them what you do when you sin. Trust me, your children know that you sin. They see it. What do you do with your sin? Tell them how you go to the Lord and you pray to Him that He's faithful. When they have sinned and you're, you're correcting them, lead them to go to the Lord and pray, confessing their sin, asking the Lord's forgiveness. And indeed, let them catch you, as it were, in your prayer closet, praying. And it is as God, our Father, has promised to work in us both the will and to do His good pleasure. It's for this reason that Christ died, to save sinners, and then to make us alive unto God in our salvation that we could be ambassadors for Christ going into the world today, making disciples, proclaiming the good news to them for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would bless us to be faithful as a church. Father, we know that the Great Commission is given to the church as a whole, but indeed every individual expression of the church has this responsibility. And Father, we find ourselves here in southern Rhode Island, and we pray that you would make us faithful. You would give us a will and a desire and then the power to be disciple makers, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would add unto the church those that are being saved, that they might be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for your praise and glory. Father, we are encouraged from the life of Moses as we identify with this man of old, knowing our own weaknesses, and then seeing in him a demonstration of your great power. May we go now and be obedient as Moses was then for the glory of Christ and the strength of Christ and by the working of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.